0: Great. Okay, so what I was going to say is uh, like late fall, I'm working on this series, this series that we're in right now, um, New Year's series. And I've spent so much time as a pastor and a teacher of God's word talking about the teachings of Jesus. And I spent a lot of time talking about the identity of Jesus because it's fascinating. Christ's identity is fascinating. Um, and as we we're looking forward to the new year, I had this idea of let's talk about the practices of Jesus. Let's just look at what Jesus did and let's kind of take this New Year's sort of energy in our culture and say, what if we just jumped into some of the practices of Jesus and like went ahead and gave ourselves permission to just sort of shelve some of the concerns or questions that we might have, like, I don't fully understand Christianity. Who does? I don't really get the whole, all the teachings of Jesus. What, okay, that's fine. Let's work on that together. But for now, what if we jumped right into some practices, some of the things that Jesus did? And I wondered if that would unlock some things for us. And so we're, uh, last week, we kicked this series off and um, we talked about Jesus's practice of withdrawing to draw near to the Father, so then I was at my desk. it was like November and I'm writing this I'm writing today's sermon, <laughs> which I'm not preaching and um, and I and I get to this and I, so I wanted to talk about christ's practice of corporate worship, what we're doing here because you read the gospels and Jesus is always in the synagogue well i've I think I went to synagogue one time in grad school just to sort of see what it was like. And and I'm I'm thinking to myself, I want to talk about Jesus' practice of worshiping alongside others, but I don't understand what it was really like for him. I need a Jewish rabbi to, hey, I know a Jewish rabbi, right? So literally mid-sentence, I, I switch off of my word processing and I go to email and I send Rabbi Joshua Rubenstein, who's preached here before, uh, uh, an email and said, hey, this is, this is above my pay grade. I'm not Jewish enough for this one. I need you. And he graciously said, I would come and, and, I'll, and I'll teach you guys what you really need to know about the church, right? Um, so uh, Rabbi Joshua is a Jewish rabbi who has embraced Jesus as Messiah. He leads a Messianic Jewish congregation in Sacramento called Beth Yeshua, the House of Jesus. And he also teaches now full time at Rockland High School. He's their publications teacher. Would you all welcome again to Emmaus, Rabbi Joshua. God bless you. (laughs) That's
1: a great introduction. I love that. That's good. I should do that more often also. I should be like midway through a sermon and be like, hey, I know somebody who could teach this better, and I (laughs) just hand it off. Um, Thank you guys for having me back. It's really a pleasure to be with you. There's such a sweetness of spirit with you guys. I don't know how to explain it other than I just feel real peace when I'm here, which is really... I don't know if you understand the value of that, um, because you're in the midst of it, and you're experiencing it most Sundays as you come together, but simply to be able to come into a place and experience this kind of tangible peace is really powerful. Um, So thank you for letting me come. Uh, It's been uh, just long enough since I've been with you that some things have happened. Uh, So I taught for a long time, taught high school for a long time. Uh, I taught at Florin High School down in South Sacramento in the Elk Grove Unified, and uh, then I taught at Bradshaw Christian High School. I was the uh, Jewish rabbi in charge of the Bible department at Bradshaw Christian High School. (laughs) That really kind of changed department meetings a lot. That was really interesting as we would like dig out Torah together and stuff. Um, And then uh, some of you know that part of my journey was uh, I've been part of Messianic Judaism my whole life. Um, my dad was the rabbi before me of our community, and uh, he was hit with a really aggressive cancer um, about nine years ago. And, uh, and the community, as he began, his health began failing, asked me to step in and become the rabbi. Um, and as I prayed through it, even though it was hard to give up teaching high school because I really love it, um, we felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, So this last spring, for a variety of reasons, I felt like God was directing me back into the classroom, Um, and it's been really amazing. Uh, So that's been a big transformation, like most of our, you know, home is going to school in the morning. Like all, there's like five of us of our seven, uh, because we have a little tribe, Uh, and that's another big development is that we, uh, we, welcomed a foster baby into our lives uh, last February. So she's been with us for about a year. Uh, She just turned one in December. She's really a sweetheart. Uh, For those of you who know a little bit about the process, we're what's called a concurrent family. we had been already preparing for foster uh, certification, and we were friends of the family uh, for this uh, little girl. And uh, so we might be adopting her, we might not. That's kind of the, the vagaries of life. But we're just loving on her a whole bunch, falling in love. She took like 27 steps the other day because we counted, you know, <laughs> as you do. Like the whole family like, one, two, three, she's doing it, four, five. She just kept going. It was amazing. So um, our lives are really full um, in, a, in a really good way. It's been really sweet uh, this last year. And when, when I received this, uh, this email and this opportunity to come to you guys, I, I really counted it as a privilege. Um, and I think that in some ways it would have been easy for me to say, like, no, my life is too full. I don't have time for that. But there was just something inside of my heart that was like, no, I, I need to come, and I need to share this with you. Um, I think part of that is just because There's a reality of the body of Messiah being grafted into a Jewish root that's important to get a hold of. And not just because it maybe informs us and gives us knowledge or informs our theology, but I think it also starts to shift our hearts within the body of Messiah as a whole. To realize that there's a a continuous story of God's interaction. And it begins with the Jewish people, and Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. There is no other Jewish Messiah, and all of his disciples were nice Jewish boys doing Jewish things, and there's this continuity and this sweetness that sometimes we we lose in this modern day and age in which faith in Yeshua, I, I call him Yeshua a lot, sorry, that's Jesus, faith in Jesus um, sometimes gets divorced from that Jewish root, and we lose some of the heart of what God was after. And so even today, talking about the synagogue, it's not like I'm talking about like maybe a a different model or a different structure for you to maybe think about theologically. It's more like this is the root that Christianity sprung out of. You guys are, in a way, a very large cult of Judaism. You've done very well. You really have. You've done very well. Um, but essentially you've sprung out of this root, and so it's important for you to understand that, that spiritual DNA. So what I want us to do today as we look in the book of Luke and we look in Nehemiah um, is purpose that this will be maybe more than just theology, if we could. So I like to begin with just a little simple prayer, which is the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is a much better teacher than me, and he knows exactly what you need to hear today. He knows what would actually be transformative in your life rather than just informational, right? And have you ever experienced this where like everybody listens to a sermon but everybody gets something slightly different out of it because that's what they needed that day, right? So some of you today, you need encouragement, exhortation. Some of you need like a a little bit of a shaking. Some of you need to feel that peace. Some of you need a, a deeper intimacy, but the Spirit can bring that. So I'm going to ask, if you don't mind, if we could pray together and just purpose in our hearts that this would be more than just information and to invite the spirit of the living God to come and teach each one of us individually. Is that cool? Okay. God, we're really grateful for your spirit. We thank you. We thank you for who you are. God, would you pour out your spirit upon us? God, would you take your word as we read it and impress it upon our hearts? God, so that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God, so that we would actually be different. And if there's anything in us, God, that's getting in the way of you, we surrender that to you right now. And we ask that you would open us up in that proper way to hear from you. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. That means in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Um, If you would then, uh, if you would take your Bibles, and if you would open up to page uh, 718, please. Let's take a look at this practice, this practice of Jesus going into the synagogue. Page 718, and I'm going to grab some of this water, and I'm also going to start my watch, my stopwatch. Because um, in my congregation, I just kind of preach until I'm done preaching. Uh, So sometimes that's like five years, and people are like, please let us leave. And small children have passed out. (laughs) People are just like, done. Um, But I'm going to actually try to be on it today. So um, I'm setting a timer for myself out of love for you, out of compassion for you. Compassion. Luke chapter 4. Um, verses fourteen through thirty. That's kind of how we look at the Word of God, um, and we're gonna we're gonna take a look in verse fourteen. There. <clears throat> I must be excited because I feel like I feel like I feel nervous and excited. It's cool. So, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That's amazing, just by itself. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him, okay? So we know then, just from that sentence, that there's not just a synagogue, a bunch of synagogues. And we actually know historically, as we look at this time period, that there are synagogues in pretty much every village and town. We know that this is common practice with the Jewish people. And uh, some of that may beg a question for those of you who know your history, because the temple is still standing, right? The temple in Jerusalem is still standing, and that is the central focus of worship for the Jewish people, right? Which is to go to the temple, to offer the sacrifices, and to be part of that bigger corporate worship. So why synagogues? Why would there even be a need for synagogues in every town, in every village? We'll talk about that. And he went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Shabbat day, on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Okay? So we know then that this is also normal for him. On Shabbat morning, he's gathering with other people, and this is a normal experience for them, right? Um, And it still is for my people. We still gather together Saturday mornings, and we... Uh, We go through actually probably a similar structure to what they go through um, in this synagogue Uh, because we read here about a little of the structure here. He stood up to read, which was an honor. It was an honor to be called up to the bema to read from the scroll. Uh, the bima would be like the podium that would be up front. And sometimes it would be elevated in the synagogue, which is actually kind of like a throwback um, to Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, which we'll read about in just a bit here. But it was like this reality of like, hearing the word of God read to you was the most important part of your day. You didn't have your own Bible You maybe had memorized a bunch of it because you were coming to the synagogue on a regular basis, but to be able to actually hear it read from the scroll was a big deal. And the power of the written word and the Torah, the words of God written down cannot be underestimated. There's such an intense power, and not just like in the hearing of the word, but the transformation of the people spiritually. Because that, in and of itself, was one of the things that has not only just in the past unified the Jewish people, but has continued to unify the Jewish people even to this day. Because it's been tough to be a Jew in history, just in case you didn't know. Um, We are routinely persecuted, kicked out of our country, scattered to the ends of the earth. The things that have unified our people have been the reading of Torah and the coming together in the synagogue. So this is an honor. Yeshua gets to stand up to read, and maybe it's even like here's like this nice Jewish boy and he's come home and it's like hey let's get Yeshua to come up and read from the scroll right and everybody's been hearing about him too like there's a little bit of buzz maybe some people are following him around he's been healing people did you know so there's probably a fair amount of gossip going on and people are excited so maybe the synagogue is even packed a little bit because this would be an exciting event and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him So this isn't the reading of the Torah. This is the reading of the Haftorah. And the Haftorah is the prophets and some of the other writings, like the Psalms and the Proverbs. And the Haftorah was read also, if you were a big enough synagogue, you would have like a Torah and you would also have a Haftorah. And so you'd be able to have somebody read from the Torah itself, the first five books of the Bible. And then you'd also be able to hear a little bit of the prophets, which was particularly powerful when you're in your own country and yet being ruled over by the Romans. And your hope is that some of these things that the prophets are writing are going to come true. That someday there will be a restoration of the Jewish people fully. Not just living in the land, but it's their land again at some point, right? So you're expectant, and maybe even you're so expectant because It's Yeshua reading because he's begun to do things that only the Messiah can do. You've heard that maybe he's healed blind people. You've heard that he's maybe healed leprosy, things that could not be healed unless God was working through somebody. And so you're expectant. And then this is just just a mic drop moment. I love this unrolling it because each portion, we call them a parasha, each portion has a bunch of different chapters, right? And so the person who's reading doesn't always read the entire thing. They can choose where they want to read in the Torah or in the Haftorah because they also get to give like what's called a drash, a little sermon. And it, during his day and age, it would have been pretty short. It would have been like, you know, Maybe five minutes at the most, but just an exposition of the scripture, which harkens back to Nehemiah and Ezra also. So this is what he chooses then to read. Because there was a lot of other stuff in Isaiah that he could have read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim Bessorah, the good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom. For the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so he just rolls back up the scroll, gives it back to the Khazan, gives it back to the attendant, the person who would like coordinate the service, right? And he just sits down. Which would have been pretty awesome. Like, I mean, it would have been this moment where, like, everybody was like, ah, and he hadn't said anything. He just went and sat down. Because it was about him. Everybody else gave commentary about the word because they weren't the living word. This passage is him. And not only is that, but in some crazy, transcendent way, he is actually the word made flesh. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This prophecy of Messiah fulfilled. And there's a lot of people, I get into conversations sometimes with Jewish people, and they're like, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. (laughs) Yeah, he did. (laughs) Yeah. And so you take them back to this passage, and be like, imagine this happened in your shul. Imagine this happened in your synagogue. Somebody gets up and reads a Messianic prophecy, and then sits down and says, yeah, that's me today that just happened. That was fulfilled right here. Done. You'd be like, ah. and it is kind of a big deal, right? All spoke well of him, and they're amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips, and they're like, dude, isn't this Yosef's son? It's like, we know, like he's a carpenter. Who is it? What's going on? What is going on? And Yeshua said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Man, to me, this proves the divinity of Yeshua. Because a normal guy would have taken the praises of all the people and be like, that's right. Tell me more about me. But Yeshua knows their hearts. And he says, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen next. You're going to demand from me the miracles that I've been doing in other places. You're going to demand from me proof. Oh, you're Messiah. Prove it. Which reveals their hearts, it shows their disbelief, it shows that they know his family too well. It's hard. Familiarity breeds contempt. Truly, he said to you, he, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Eliahu's time, Elijah's time. And when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this because he was calling out their hearts of disbelief. And they got up, drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Welcome home. (laughs) But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Which, in my mind, I kind of picture that like the Jedi mind trick. He was just like, and they all just like, and he's just like, and we're going to get lunch. I don't think that's actually what happened. I don't know. But that's, it's a trip to me, honestly. It really is. Like, you're surrounded by an angry mob. They want to murder you. Oh, by the way, I'm leaving. So the first thing that I wanted to talk to you about is that, of course, Yeshua went to the synagogue. He's a nice Jewish boy. The synagogue is part of who we are. And in order to really understand that, you have to understand how the synagogue even developed in the first place, which is in response to the intense persecution of our people. There's this reality of the Jewish people that even though we've been persecuted, we've been driven out of the land, we've been captured, we've been sold as slaves, all of these horrible things have happened to us. There's been murders and pogroms and the Holocaust, and we're still here. Why? Now, I don't believe that it's just because the synagogue exists. I believe that the synagogue came into existence because God has sworn by himself to preserve the Jewish people. God has given a supernatural authority and power to the Jewish people to survive. And there has always been a faithful remnant of Jewish people. We know this from the book of Romans. And not just faithful remnant who believe in Yeshua, but even back before this. Even back in the Babylonian captivity, there were faithful Jews that were taken into captivity who still loved God, and they would not bow down to the false gods. And they met with one another to hold on to what was true, to read the words of God, to recite the teachings of God to one another, because they knew that that was the one thing that mattered more than anything else. And so the synagogue is literally an outgrowth of God's preservation sovereignly of the Jewish people. So the structure itself is in some ways fluid. But the underlying spiritual reality is that God has used this, the reading of the word and the gathering together of the faithful hearts, to preserve his people, even in the midst of insane persecution. It's very much like the church that's not here in the West that undergoes insane persecution for loving Jesus. And you cannot keep them from meeting together. They will meet together, and they will smuggle the Word of God in together. I remember listening to uh, Francis Chan talking about going and being part of the underground church in China. Some of you dig Francis Chan, I do too. I think he's just got such a cool heart, right? But anyways, he's like, <laughs> we go into this underground room and through this corridor of like all these underground spaces, and I can't believe it, and I have no idea where, we're, and then also we're in this huge, Underground place, and there's like 5,000 people who love Jesus in this place. And there's some dude up at the front with like a guitar, and he hits the first chord, and they just begin screaming praises to God for an hour. There's a power that we, in some ways, We don't know because we're not undergoing that persecution, but there's a power of the faithful hearts gathering together to hold on to what is true and to encourage one another because that's all that's left. There's a desperation in it, do you see? And that's the desperation that was in the hearts of the Jewish people that the synagogue sprung out of. So Jesus going and being in the synagogue is just life. It's just breath. It's just what you do. Because it's what has preserved us. And if you're not faithful, you just decide not to be part of the Jewish people, not to worship the true God, and you just drift off. But the faithful hearts come together. You see, and God has disciplined, has chastised the Jewish people so many times throughout history that our hearts keep getting directed back to this over and over and over again. It's like as if we get too comfortable and and as God warned us, when you eat and are satisfied and you grow comfortable, you're going to forget me. So I want to look at Nehemiah Chapter 8. And I think so far I'm like on my first slide. That's fantastic. It's really good. So this will be a a three-hour tour. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. This is page 338 uh, in your Bible. Page 338. And to set a little bit of the historical context here, we're going to look at Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 18 there had been these waves of faithful hearts of the Jewish people who had been coming back to the land of Israel. And it was hard. Because when the Babylonian captivity had begun, all of like the middle class, upper middle class aristocracy, all of them were taken into slavery, into captivity. And really just the poor, the very, very poor, the agrarian uh, farmers, those were the only ones that were left in the land. But gradually over time, as they were able, those who could escaped from that Babylonian captivity. Sometimes they were released from that captivity and they began to come back to the land. And many of these were the faithful hearts. Because the faithful hearts were the ones that would, even in the Babylonian captivity, meet together and discuss the word and be hungry for it, even though maybe they didn't have a Torah. Because what we read here is when they read the Torah together for the first time, coming back out of captivity, they weep. And I don't know what your experience has been like with God, but there have been times where it feels so sweet, where the reality of God with us in the room is so powerful that I've wept. And so I don't think that this is just them weeping because they've come out of slavery into freedom. I think spiritual transformation is happening because after all these years, they're able to read the word together again. And this is is the model that gets duplicated out to every town and village in Jesus' time. To come together and to hear the word. To come together to hear the word. To know one another and to be known. So when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, so many of these Jewish people then had come back with Ezra and with Nehemiah, all the people came together as one, Echad, so it's like this plural unity, one. They come together, and they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, the scroll of the five books of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Okay, so, can you imagine, like, getting together with a whole bunch of people as one, and you're just like, could somebody read the Bible to us? Please. Please. Somebody tell us what we're supposed to be doing. Please. So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon, long sermon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all of the people listened attentively to the book of the law for hours. Hours. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Maybe kind of like this. And behind him, and beside him on his right, stood Malatiah, Shemam, Ananiah, Uriah, Helkiah, and Maasaiah. And on his left were Padiah Mishael, Malchiah, Hashum, Hashbatna, Zechariah, and Meshulam. So heads of tribes and priests and Levites. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. Ezra praised Adonai, he praised the Lord, the great God, and all of the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen, and then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And the Levites, whole list of them, they instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there, and they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And that was literally the model that continued in Yeshua's time. The model that continued in his time was we would read the Word, and then we would discuss how can we do it in our lives. And this is also maybe something that's slightly different between the Jewish root that the body of Messiah grew out of and the body of Messiah. Jewish thinking tends to be very holistic and practical because God said, do these things. And so we tend to be focused on doing these things. Sometimes within the church, sometimes within the body of Messiah, people are like more interested in believing the right things. And we can't allow ourselves to just be hearers of the word. We're told in the book of James that we also should be doers. Doers of the word that this is in fact how we demonstrate that we do love God is by doing these things Francis Chan once again gives a really funny illustration he's like it's if I tell my daughter to go and clean her room and so like a week later I check on her and she's like dad I get together with like 10 of my friends and we read the original Greek translation of clean your room and I can tell you It is profound and amazing, and it will blow your mind. We also maybe looked at some of the ancient Aramaic for clean your room. There's some startling differences. And he's like, yeah, so did you clean your room? No, we're getting to that. We're we're going to get there, but we need to understand it first. No, So in the Jewish tradition, it's like we're going to read the scroll, and then you're going to do it. And the only debate is about something that's kind of maybe old, and it's how do we figure out how to do that today? But it's not get rid of that. It's like how do we live that out? And so a big part of synagogue life was how do you do this? And so when Yeshua would go from synagogue to synagogue, can you imagine it's not not a really smart guy It's the living word teaching you in synagogue that day. He actually knows what the Torah means because he is the Torah. And so when he tells you how to live something out, you're like, I had never thought of it like that before. And he's like, yeah, because people get in the way. People invent all these little rules and these things to do, but he's like, but I say unto you, right, this. It's hard in some ways for us to understand this. So, the synagogue was so important, finally, on to slide number two, but I've already hit this because of the persecution that had happened with the Jewish people and because of the persecution that still happens with the Jewish people, right? In New York, right now, the Orthodox community, right now, 2020, are being physically assaulted on the streets. And you can bet that their synagogue worship has changed as they've been physically assaulted on the streets for being Jews once again. And as a Jew, I can tell you, it does change the calculus a little bit when you're starting to undergo persecution again. You start thinking of the things that really matter. And then, of course, my third slide, which I hit also, was that of course, Yeshua went into the synagogues because he practiced the Judaism of his day. He was a nice Jewish boy. In many ways, he would have been considered a Pharisee. That would have been the sect of Judaism to which he belonged, except he was also taking some things and shifting some things. And, and one of the things in particular, of course, was he was always like, okay, it is possible for some people to do the commandments of God and yet for their hearts to to be far from him. And I'm sure we could say that within the body of Messiah too, right? That there are some who can do Christian life simply because they've got self-control. But there's a difference between that and loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and obedience flowing out of that. And that was one way that he was really, I think, kind of flipping Judaism on its head. So what did the synagogue look like in Yeshua's time? Probably a lot like today. There was probably a chazan, a prayer leader, a person who was in charge of the synagogue to make sure that it was kept up. Um, They would have weekly meetings on Shabbat. But it was also, especially for Jews in persecution, it was about education too. Because in order to actually read the word, and know the word, you have to be able to read. And you got to be able to read in Hebrew. And you got to be able to write in Hebrew. And so you enter the conversation by education. And so a big part of the synagogue life was just taking the kids and getting all the kids to actually be able to read and write Hebrew, to be able to know the word of God and this still continues on in synagogue right Um, and I know that you guys also have a tradition and a way that you do in this church of like taking young people and bringing them purposefully into manhood into womanhood right just like kind of like bar and bat mitzvah within the Jewish community that there's this idea that once you've studied enough and you're in relationship with God then you take your place as part of the community and you wrestle through it so that would have been very similar to Yeshua's time. The same thing that we're doing in the synagogue today. And in fact, you can read this. When you read the story of Yeshua, you can see that he, as a young kid even, like goes into the temple, right? And he's having conversations with the rabbis and with the Levitical priests. And and the interesting thing is not that he's having the conversation with them. It's that they're like, he's asking really amazing questions. Whose kid is this? right? So it is the way of our people, and it is actually one of the ways that has united us for quite some time, that we believe so deeply in holding on to that Word of God, which has preserved us even from the time of Nehemiah all the way through to today, that those who are faithful hearts gather together, and they want to be able to read the Word. So it's education. And this is actually, unfortunately, one of the things that begins to dissolve when you get into a comfortable society. It's Something that's happening right now to the Jewish community right here in America. It's like we're so comfortable that it's, like it's become about a cultural expression rather than a deep hunger of faithful hearts to know the word of God. A bar and bat mitzvah is now like a, it's just like a big party sometimes for people. Instead of like, did you wrestle with the word of God, young man? Then come up here and tell us what you studied. And then let's welcome you as a man. And the difference is survival. The difference is persecution. Make no mistake, a bar mitzvah in the midst of persecution means something far different than it does when you're in comfort. But the synagogue was then, especially when they were more persecuted, it was a hub for the whole community. It was like... um, I think a good way to think of it would be like a community center uh, within an ethnic ghetto because you would have all the Jewish people gathered together, right? And they would all be like trying to survive, trying to support one another. So it's like partial community events, partial wrestling with the word of God. Some of them are just there because... They don't want to die, and, like, being outside of the community might mean actual, like, death, like, literal death, right? And so there's this weird place where, like, the synagogue wasn't just we get together once a week, and we bless God's holy name, and you hear the word. It was like this was life. So how can we follow this today? And I think the first question is, should we? Can we even follow this today? And this ties into my, my final point, which is the, the really big question of like, is the deep intimacy and the spiritual hunger that we saw in the synagogue of Yeshua's time even possible without persecution? I'm not sure. I mean, I'll just tell you right up. I'm not sure what the answer is. But I will tell you this. Among the faithful hearts, the Ruach, the Spirit, often stirs up inside of us a hunger for this kind of intimate fellowship. And we should not ignore that hunger. We should not ignore that feeling that we must be connected. And it feels to me as if we are in a world that is at war with intimacy and community. It is difficult to get and keep people connected. Why is that if it's so good for us? Because this is a world with spiritual opposition, because it is an act of warfare to gather, to simply be in the same room with one another, and it's even deeper warfare to purposefully connect with other people on a level in which you can actually spiritually uplift them and know them. So I'm not sure that we should follow the the model of the first century believers because, honestly, they weren't really following a model. They were just Jews going to synagogue, except they loved Yeshua. And over time, that became an issue, and they started getting kicked out of other synagogues because those synagogues were like, no, we're not cool with Yeshua. But that was like 100 years of development, This was no model that they were following. This was just life. And they were doubly persecuted because they were Jews and they loved Jesus. So they weren't just persecuted by the Romans and the rest of the world for just being Jews, but they were also persecuted sometimes by their fellow Jews for loving Jesus. And so they were even tighter together. And when they got together, right, in the book of Acts, like after some of them were in jail, it was like, it was just like an explosion of power and spirit. Because what they prayed for wasn't like, God, help us to be comfortable. It was like, make us more bold. Give us more fire. Send us. So is that possible? Supernaturally, yes, is what I believe but I don't believe that it's possible in the natural. I don't think that you can just kind of want community and it'll happen. I think you have to surrender to God. And I think it's worth it. Because many of you, that's why you're here. Even if you've never sat down to think about it, you're here because you're hungry for something different. You don't want just the superficial, shallow, experience of bopping around and never really knowing people there's a part of you that is hungry to be known and that is a god-given hunger and there are gifts that the holy spirit has given you as we read in the book of corinthians that are not just for you they're not even primarily for you it's for the body So you come and you bring something utterly unique into this community. You may be the only person who can intercede and pray for somebody that that only you know their name. Nobody else here even knows them. And you may have a gift that as you bring it into this place, only you can bring. And there is so much power in that. And it's so worth fighting for. And so my final admonition to you today is we should fight for a community that feels like family because it's worth fighting for. And we shouldn't wait until the persecution of the people of God is so horrific that we have to band together. We should fight for it now. And we should recognize it as spiritual warfare. And we should ask then to be empowered by God to do this. And we should be intentional about it. Rather than allowing our lives to be filled up We should take this priority of coming together and worshiping and loving and building up and we should place it as as a cornerstone in some ways of our life that does not move. And other things can move around it because this brings life. And not just life to you personally, but life to the body. You bring something to Emmaus that nobody else can bring. That, I believe, is what we should emulate. That, I believe, is what we should actually fight for. I believe that we should fight for it before it becomes an emergency. And honestly, guys, as a nice Jewish boy, I'm a little concerned that it is going to be an emergency soon for Jews. I really am. Anti-Semitism is insane. It is growing and not small It's growing in big ways. And I will tell you that the Jewish people are like the canary in the coal mine. It is only a matter of time until people are hating openly all the people of God. And I'm not saying that to be like Debbie Downer. I'm saying that so maybe our hearts would be reoriented to what really matters. There are ways for Pastor Nathan and the leadership of this community to pursue structure that facilitates this kind of synagogue intimacy. But real transformation comes from you. Real transformation comes because your heart is lit on fire by the Spirit and you begin, you begin to seek intimacy with the other people in this room. You begin to look for opportunities to invite somebody out for coffee or to, you know, get a babysitter so that you can actually go and have grown-up conversations with people or to come regularly. See, it's, it's this reality of, like, the The snowball it begins small up at the top of the mountain and it grows as it comes down. And each one of us has a responsibility to look for the small things that the Spirit is saying, do this. And not turn a deaf ear, but to do it. And then in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to pass the peace. We're going to have an opportunity to actually like practice this right now. Not wait. We could be doers of the word in like five minutes if we could just get Rubenstein to shut up. <laughs> and so you're going to have an opportunity to like go and to bless people with the peace of Messiah, with the peace of Christ. And that is a real act of intimacy if you allow it to be. It can be real and from the heart and empowered by the Holy Spirit Or it could just be a thing to do to look like all the other people doing the thing. But I would just challenge those of you who actually something is stirring inside of you towards intimacy. Don't neglect even tiny opportunities to pursue intimacy. It's worth it. So what I want us to do is just end with a prayer once more of Holy Spirit, would you empower us to really seek intimacy together as a community? In small little ways, in big ways, whatever it is, would you give us the power to do that in the face of the opposition that we feel? And then I'd love us to take that opportunity to pass the peace and to really do it from the heart as more than just an obligation. Does that sound kosher? Is that cool? All right, and let's pray. Father, we love you, we love you, we love you. We're so grateful for how you've preserved your people. We're grateful for the love of our Messiah and that you have provided a way for us to even know you through the blood of our Messiah. It's it's such a blessing. God, we believe that each one of us has unique gifts to build up this body. God, we ask for your spirit to come right now and to stir up those gifts inside of us. God, we ask for your spirit To come and help us pursue intimacy with one another. Even in this moment. Give us what we need, Father. In Yeshua's name. Amen.